0: Hello to the people of Lakeview and welcome to this fourth episode in the Heart of Judgment as we continue studying through the book of Micah. Um, Last week we began to see what it's going to take for God to create for himself a people out of his corrupt nation, especially looking at the state his people were starting in. Um, And and this week we're going to see, we're going to look ahead to the promise that God will complete this work to get his holy nation and then sort of zoom back to see some of the ways it's going to look when God gets us from the realities of now to the hope of later. Um, And and the hope in Micah 4, it, it kind of works the same way that you have hope when you read a World War II story. Right, I don't know how many uh, books and movies I have seen and read on World War II. It seems uh, Americans just love World War II. That, uh, Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List, Unbroken, The Book Thief, All the Light We Cannot See, Band of Brothers, both the book and the miniseries, uh, Indiana Jones, maybe not that last one. But um, there's, there's probably a lot of reasons that World War II is so popular. But I think one of them is that we always know how the story is going to end. We know it's generally all going to work out by the end of the narrative. And so that hope walks with us and and we can enter into really dark settings and scenarios because we know at the end of the day, the good guys win the war. This is going to work out somehow, even if I can't see exactly what it's going to take to get there. And that, that kind of fits Micah's context, too, that, that he's walking through a really discouraging and dark time, right? At the end of his life, he ended his ministry at best in a tenuous reprieve from God's judgment. We mentioned last week that the, that King Hezekiah does repent as a result of Micah's words. And, um, but at the end of Micah's life, we also know from Isaiah that that God had said that the peace would last only as long as Hezekiah was alive. And then after that, the nation of Babylon, the new power on the block, was going to come and destroy God's people. On the whole, the nation is still in decline and doom hangs in the air, even if it's on pause for a moment. And, And Micah 4 is helping to make sense of dark times like the one that Micah was living through, by locating them on God's larger timeline. Fast forwarding to the end and promising some way, somehow, this present difficulty is going to resolve. God's going to work this out into the picture that he promises in these first few verses of Micah 4. Starting Micah 4, verse 1, "...it shall come to pass in the latter days..." that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountain, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." For all the people walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. All of the problems Mike is facing are going to resolve this way. And and would we, though, read this sort of passage, now living 2,700 years later, the first question that we might have is, when is this sort of thing going to happen? Is it already happened? Have parts of it already happened? Is it, is it all still going to be in the future? It seems like we still have wars, right? So at least that part's got to be in the future. You might wonder, is this a picture of the new earth? Or is this picturing uh, maybe the millennial reign here on earth before that eternal time? You might wonder, is this literal pictures or a metaphor? Are, are we really going to see the mountain raised up and the hills all sort of leveled? You might be wondering right now just what the heck I meant by millennial reign because you never heard that before. Um, but uh, while I think there's some value in questions like that, um, they, they kind of help build our anticipation and look and wonder, what's this going to be like? If you talk to me about eternity, you know, it's one of my favorite topics, just sort of speculate what we will and won't be able to do in the new earth. Um, but, but I don't really think that's what Micah is trying to communicate here with this picture, He's not really trying to give us the specifics of the plan or, or a full picture of what it's going to be like. This is, this is poetry. It, it's not a schedule for the end of the world or plans for forming a celestial government. It's meant to give us hope as we live in present darkness. It, it's kind of be like if I was trying to explain, I'm, I'm trying to go on vacation with my kids to the Blue Ridge Mountains in a few weeks, hopefully that'll work out, but... Um, when I'm telling them what that's going to be like, I'm not going to give them all the details of the plan, the route we're going to go on, um, who's going to cook dinner what night we're spending to the time with my family, uh, what the schedule is going to be and all the activities and a play-by-play of how that's going to look. I'm, I'm just going to talk about the highlights. right? I'm going to tell them about the waterfall that we're going to go see or the, the canoe trip that we're going to try to take them on or going to cook s'mores over the campfire and how much they're going to enjoy that. Um, But if they try to take those details and create a timeline to figure out exactly what we're going to be doing and what it's going to look like, they wouldn't have enough details. They would make a weird picture of what that was going to be. They might imagine that we're going to have a fire in the bottom of our canoe as we're going over a waterfall. That's just not what I'm trying to do, though. I'm not trying to give them all the details. I'm just trying to build their anticipation and hope for our trip. In the same sort of way, Micah's not giving us enough details here to to fill out a picture of what exactly all of this is going to be like. But notice what he's doing. He's, He's showing us that the present problems we have now are going to be reversed. All of the pictures he's painting are reversing problems that would have existed in Micah's day. Right now, Micah is seeing that Jerusalem is being brought low. The threat is that they're going to be plowed like a field, we saw in Micah 3. But later, he says, Zion is going to be lifted up like the highest mountain. Not only above every other nation, but up into the clouds where everyone recognizes is the realm of God. Zion is going to become the city of God, the place where he dwells and reigns. Now, in Micah's day, foreign powers were constantly forcing Judah's hand and abusing their power to make them pay tribute and um, taking whatever they wanted. But later, Micah says, God is going to rule over all nations. No one will tell them what to do. God will be in control of the whole world. Now, warfare is a constant, devastating problem, but later, no one's even going to have use for a sword. They're going to beat them into plowshares. Now, people often are poor, they suffer loss and difficulty, but later, every man is going to have more than just his needs, needs met. He's going to have his own vine and fig tree, these luxury plants, the pictures that they're going to be living comfortably and in. Plenty. Micah's not trying to tell us how that's going to be or all that's going to look like. He's just trying to give us hope that these things are going to work out in the end. The present problems are not going to stay, they're going to be redeemed. And then Micah zooms a little back and shows us that the way to get to later is often not the most direct route. It's not always what you would expect. God to do. God's redemption is going to lead us through judgment and destruction. And and the nation that he's going to assemble is going to be made up of people who bear the scars of the route to get there. In verse six, he says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off A strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion for this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. What's remarkable in this description is the condition of the people that God is assembling. Not just that He's going to rescue His people, but what they will be like when He rescues them. He's going to assemble those who've been driven away, those who are lame, those who are afflicted, those who were cast off. On the way to God's renewed kingdom, God's people are going to see some hard days. And that should really be no surprise to any of us who've watched God work for really any period of time throughout his story of the Bible, right? We've seen Joseph go through slavery and prison before God uses him to save the promised family. And then we've seen that family made slaves until they could be brought out as a large multitude and brought to the promised land. King David, after he's promised to be the king of God's nation, ends up in exile in the land of his enemies, pretending to be insane so that they won't kill him. You kind of wonder if maybe he was actually going a little bit insane, trying to follow God down this twisting path to his promises. What kind of picture do we, what kind of people do we picture God assembling when he brings us together as a holy nation? Do you imagine that this is just a group full of people who've accomplished much, who God chose from the crowd for their quality, who can talk for eternity about all of their victories and all that God led them through on his way, the way to his kingdom? Because that's not the picture Mike is giving us here. Micah's picture is closer to pictures you may have seen of an overcrowded boat full of refugees fleeing their birth country with nothing more than what they can hold in their two hands. God's people are not pictured here as an assembly of the strong and fearsome, but of the rescued and the needy. The route from now to later will lead them through dark seasons. And then Micah gives us some more of what that prediction, predicted route is going to look like. We're going to see the next few verses are going to be three images where Micah describes the situation of now and then shows how it leads towards the promises of later. The first two of them are um, gonna be covered in chapter four and the third one is really the topic of chapter five. So we're gonna leave that one to next week, but, but recognize this is a continuing cycle of God saying, now this is what it's like and then this is what I'm going to do out of that problem. So we're starting here in verse nine. He says, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. The first now problem that Micah is dealing with is around Israel's leadership or, or lack of leadership. He asked the question, have you no king? Have you no counselor and, and, and the, the way he's using language here is so packed full. This is a loaded question uh, because Judah has a king when Micah writes this, right? So, so you've got to think for a minute, what is he talking about? What is he trying to get us to see? In one sense, as you see the metaphor play out, you recognize he's speaking about a time when people will have no king, when they're exiled in Babylon and their king is dethroned. But at the same time, at the first question is sort of a now question, and and it's a rhetorical question. Because the answer to the question should have been, oh Israel, do you have a king? And they should have said, yes, God is our king. God is our ruler. He's the one who reigns and saves us. But Micah knows that God's people do not recognize that he is their king. And so in verse 10, his condemnation is the judgment. He tells to them, writhe and groan. You've said you have no king. You've not recognized God. Now, therefore, you will writhe and groan as one in labor who has no king. He's declaring this because they've not recognized God as their king. But then he resolves that condemnation with hope. The pain that he declares to them is as one in labor because out of the labor, out of the pain of exile, he's going to redemption. New life is going to come out of this judgment. The problem of now, not just their loss of the human king, but their disregard for God as their king, is the stage on which God is going to begin to fulfill the promises of the latter days. Through exile, he's going to lead to the day when he will be king for eternity. He doesn't tell us exactly who or how he's going to do that. Again, there's not for details. This is to give us hope that when you see this happen, recognize this is leading towards God's definite plan to save his people. The second cycle of now to later is going to be dealing with um, the nations around. And this one's a little bit harder to figure out. So let's walk through this one. Verse 11, he says, Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Second now problem, Micah's looking outside of Israel to the assembled nations that are threatening around them. And this, this opening imagery probably has a double meaning. Right? Israel's often pictured through the Bible as a woman, and it's hard not to hear in this threats to let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion, to hear the ugly realities of what war often was like for the women in invaded countries. But you also see, this is working probably on a national level where you, you can imagine that the temple is what is being defiled and laid open. As it would be when the nations come and tear it down, the holy of holies open for all to see. But in any case, you feel the threat of this moment, the, the menace of the nations around. But just as in the first image, you see what Micah is revealing is that God has a plan for this Problem. This is not going to remain. God is promising that their enemies will be thwarted and Israel will have victory. And what's difficult, I think, to understand about this is that we on this side of the story might wonder would, did that ever actually happen? Did, did Were Micah's words fulfilled? Would, would someone who picked this book up and read this in the first year of having been taken to Babylon scoff at this prediction. The nations threatened and God did not save us. He let us be destroyed. But as we see with many prophecies in the Bible, God fulfills his promises often in ways we would not expect. It's often hard to find a single event that corresponds one-to-one to exactly what God predicts in these prophetic reversals of present problems into his eternal hope. For example, you, David might have been surprised to learn what God meant when he said, you will always have a descendant on the throne. Right? David would probably have been surprised to understand that, that, that Jesus was the one to fulfill that. That was the king that nobody expected. His kingdom was not what you would expect. It wasn't Israel. It wasn't even of this world. But if David looked back and said, and God told him, this is how I'm going to fulfill this promise to you, I don't think David would say, no, that's not what you said. That's not right. That didn't happen. No, I think David would look at the way God fulfilled this promise and say, oh, that is what you said, but it's better than what I expected. I think the same way here, if I could go back and show Micah what happened after his time, Not only that Babylon and Assyria would both eventually be defeated and the people would be brought back to their land, but even more, if I could show him the the triumph of Christ on the cross over the ultimate enemy, over death and sin, and if I could look forward for him to show him that Christ will return one day to remove all opposition and to establish his reign forever. I think Micah would think this had been fulfilled. He would shout, the horn of Israel is victorious. The iron rod of Christ reigns forever and none can oppose him. I think he'd say, that's, that's what you said, God, but it's, it's better than what I expected. And I think seeing pictures like this of how God leads us from present problems to his hope in unexpected ways is helpful for those of us who are still living in dark days. Following Micah's God is not always easy. Many of his promises are still for later. We often find ourselves stuck in the problems of now and the road that God leads us to to his hope is often not at all what we would have expected. I think we often wish, I often wish, God would have chosen a different path. One without suffering, racism, warfare, any need to even have the word ravaged and i think we wish he'd be a little clearer about his promises sometimes we'd have a better idea of how long we should expect to be in the now exactly what are you going to do about this problem god but but there's two things i think we should see as we watch god lead towards his promised hope of the latter days One, that at the center of all these promises is not a bunch of details and descriptions about what God is going to do, but it is God himself. He is the one who rescues us. He is the one who has the plan. And so what God is asking us as he gives us these pictures is not, do you understand what I'm doing? His question is, do you trust me? Do you believe that I will fulfill these promises, even if you don't understand how I can do that? Even if it doesn't look like what you expect? And I think we can also begin to see that God is often doing more than we expect him to, more than we're even looking for him to do. Sometimes the problems that we want God to fix aren't what he's looking to fix later, we get to chapter six. God is going to remind his people that the problem of foreign nations is no big deal for him. He's dealt with this problem before. He led them out of the land of Egypt when they were just slaves and could do nothing to help him. When they went by the nation of Moab that tried to get God to curse them, he turned that curse into a blessing. It would be no problem for God to deal with Assyria. But he's after more. And just fixing the problem of Assyria. Right, we saw in chapter 3 that God is looking to make a holy nation. He's looking to fix the corruption among his own people. And that's not an easy problem. How is he going to do that? How can he get a holy nation out of a corrupt humanity? Even so today, God could fix any problem that we're dealing with. Whatever you're feeling desperate about these days, God could fix it. But if he did, what would take its place? If we could drain the swamp of all political corruption, wouldn't it just fill right back in? If we could fire every racist police officer, we would at best end up with a different set of problems. Sin is going to spring up everywhere among a corrupt people no matter what you do to fix it unless you can fix that problem. Now, none of those are an excuse not to deal with those problems. I mean, there's lots to say about what God's people who are pursuing his goodness to be a holy nation should be doing and caring about all of those problems. We're, we're not defeatists. But if you recognize the difficulty of what God is trying to accomplish to create a holy nation out of a fallen humanity, then you might begin to understand why he often does not settle for the quick fix to today's problem. Personally, I'm increasingly convinced that you can only get a holy nation by going through difficulty. The only way I know to teach dependence on God is through situations that I cannot resolve. The only way I know how to learn, how to trust, is to live through situations I don't understand. The only people I know who can really grow in generosity are those who have experienced need. Only people who have felt fear can be courageous. But whatever God's reason, whatever he's doing in your present situation, and it's always more than we understand or expect The question for us is still the same. It's not, do we understand? Can we get our minds around all that God might be doing? Can we see it even on the back end of the story? It's, do we trust God? Do we trust him to fulfill his promises even when he leads down dark paths, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Next week, we're going to see the final now to later cycle. And we're going to see that God's ultimate path to later is through the one that he is going to send to lead his people out of darkness into victory. God is going to promise to send a Messiah to lead a ragged remnant from the captivity of our present problems to the hope of the latter days. And this will be the ultimate fulfillment of how we get from now to later. And I hope you'll join us again next week for the conclusion of this section of Micah.